Now on Radio Italia Uno, it's time to change the world with Matt McQuinley. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We focus on changing the world for the better by taking personal responsibility, canceling cancel culture, discussing and listening to each other on topics like leadership, cultural trends, business, history, and more. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Right now on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hello and happy Monday. As you're aware, our focus on this show is to change the world for the better. One of the ways we do this is by taking personal responsibility and trying ourselves, not waiting for the government, not waiting for someone else to help us, but trying ourselves to make the world a better place. I'd like to talk a little bit about a somewhat alarming trend that's occurring in Australia, the U.S., and around the world, and that's the decline of volunteerism. In 2013, 65% of people in the United States volunteered. In that year, in the year 2021, that number had dropped to 56%. In Australia, it's even more alarming. In 2010, approximately 36% of Australians engaged in formal volunteering. By 2019, that number had dropped to about 29%. What's happening? Well, Stanford University did a study, and what they found was that there are three main reasons people say they're not volunteering. One, they don't have enough time, and that volunteer organizations are not flexible enough with their schedules. Two, they don't have enough information about volunteering, and volunteering roles just seem not interesting. And three, and most shockingly, is no one asked them to. Let's talk about stereotypes. Hopefully this won't get me in too much trouble, but the stereotype or perception of a lot of volunteer organizations is that there are old people trying to get into heaven. But that seems pretty far from the truth. In the United States, and the numbers are very, very similar in Australia, 31% of volunteers are male and 29% are female. So there are more men than women. In Australia, 36% of people who, vol- who volunteer are from the age of 40 to 54. Let me say that again to make sure I made myself clear. 36% of all people between 40 and 54 are volunteers in Australia. But in the age group 15 to 24 and 55 to 64, that number is only 29%. So it's not that they're too busy. 40 to 54, they've got a career, they've got children, they've got a mortgage, they've got a lot going on. The most common reason why people in Australia say that they decide to volunteer is social contact. And the most common reason why people in Australia volunteer are, wait for it, they know someone who's doing it, and guess what? They were asked to do it. Let's keep these things in mind. We're going to come back to that idea later on in the show. Today, we're also going to drill down a little bit with a couple of our guests on specific volunteer work they've done. Infant mortality and maternal mortality is a worldwide problem. And the volunteers we're talking to today chose to focus their energies in that direction. After ruling East Timor for almost 500 years, the nation of Portugal decided to leave. Of course, 
A power vacuum developed, and a non-bloody civil war ensued shortly thereafter in their quest for self-determination. Unfortunately, almost immediately after that, Indonesia invaded East Timor. In that 24-year occupation by Indonesia, the population decreased due to fatalities from the conflict, famine, disease, etc., by an amazing 31%, making it perhaps the most effective genocide since World War II. The infrastructure of East Timor was almost completely destroyed in an effort by Indonesia to pacify the population and to force the East Timorese to be dependent on the Indonesian government. Just a couple of the many consequences of this were that infant mortality in East Timor was 13 times higher than Australia. And the maternal (laughs) – English isn't my first language, folks – the maternal mortality rate was 36 times higher. And that's not something I should have been joking about. Not so long after the occupation, our guest, Dr. Bruno Giorgio, decided that he wanted to get involved in helping in this tragedy. Now, Dr. Bruno, we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff today, but before we talk about your work in East Timor, I I want to thank you for being here, and I also want to point out that you were in private practice as an obstetrician and a gynecologist for 39 years, and when we were talking over coffee the other day, I was really impressed and, and, and enamored with your story about how you were one of the pioneers here in Adelaide on keyhole surgery for women, which obviously now is is the way that things are done. But you had this almost Copernican resistance against it, and, and, and you just had a real uphill battle trying to sell your colleagues on this and, and uh, that this was the way to ultimately get your patients uh, better health and better care. Can, can you tell me about that struggle, please? Well, if you lead anything and put your head above the parapet and uh, in a battle, you're the first one that gets shot. Mm. That's probably a bit dramatic. However, uh, anything new is always met by resistance, and it's not just confined to the medical fraternity, but in general, medical fraternity is fairly conservative. So it was a matter of time. It was probably a decade before we started seeing those kind of techniques being taught to new trainees. And really, as one generation uh, retires, a new generation uh, comes on uh, working in the field and they've been educated and trained. I can say that um, uh, my early involvement was such that when I was asked to show my credentials (coughs) when um, applying for those sort of privileges to do that kind of surgery... Uh, I was able to say, well, um, I don't have them because I was ahead of the teachers mm. that they were currently looking for. So I got in as a, on a, what's called a grandfather clause. <laughs> okay. All right. Wow. Well, that's, that's just really impressive <clears throat> on how, you know, one person can make a difference in changing paradigms, and, and, that's, and that's best for everybody. It is, but uh, it's not just one person. It's a movement, mm. but it has to start with, with somebody. Somebody, yes. And uh, the, when we started here in Adelaide, there were three of us. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Well, I want to switch gears here a little bit, and I want to talk a little bit about your work in East Timor. But, but first of all, before that, though, how did you decide that you wanted to get in volunteer, get involved in volunteer work, and 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 how did you decide that the life of service was for you? Well, uh, the concept of service uh, is uh, all too familiar when dealing with uh, patient care. Mm. 
uh, we don't do it just for the money. We do mm. it because we want to we want to make a difference in people's lives. Um, in fact, uh, I was asked to become a member of a charter uh, to become a charter member of a new club called the Rotary Club of Morialta, uh, chartered by the Rotary Club of Campbelltown. At the time, I was thirty four. My uncle was a long term member. And he invited me to join. I mm. was 34 then. Uh, beg your pardon, I was 32. And the average age of the club when it started was 34. I'm still in the same club 39 years later. And the average age is 71. But interestingly, uh, the uh, numbers of our members, uh, sorry, our membership numbers remain pretty much the same between 30 and 35 for all those years. Mm. Uh, so what impressed me about uh, Rotary is that it's uh, far-reaching worldwide. I mean, there are 1.2 million members, 46,000 clubs. The uh, f- the trust fund that Rotary International holds is 1.2 billion, and in 100 years they've spent $4 billion. So uh, the r- range of projects were vast and enormous um, opportunity to... Uh, to take part in something or other. So in my early days, uh, because of the work commitment, I couldn't devote the sort of time that other members in the club did, maybe uh, selling raffle tickets, barbecues and such. It was just impossible because I was always on call. But I took the opportunity to... um, I took the opportunity, though, to home host six uh, exchange students through the Rotary International Exchange Programme these were young people, 16 to 17, and I can assure you that uh, it was a life-changing experience for most of them. And even today, um, so many years on, you know, 40 years, nearly 40 years on, I'm still in communication with some of them. So, uh, but as I got a little bit older, um, I decided that I needed to use some of my skill set directly and that that skill set really is as an obstetrician and gynecologist. Mm. And the thing... Well, it seems like you've had, uh, from speaking to you before, you've had some, you've got such a varied skill set. You're obstetrician, gynecologist, a builder, being in business, you know, being in Rotary, and Rotary had a footprint in East Timor. After the break, I really want to dig into... Uh, you know, how all these things conspired together for you to make a big impact out there. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back with Dr. Bruno Giorgio. Uh, and uh, we've talked right before the break about the fact that you've got this varied skill set, which doesn't really seem to go together as far as having a winery, being a business person, being a builder, a gynecologist, an obstetrician, all this other great stuff. And and all this stuff kind of combined together and it conspired to, to – did it all conspire to help you – uh, do all the great work you did in East Timor, or was it something else? What made you decide to jump in the fray there? Well, <clears throat> as a member of Rotary, and uh, with the motto of service about self, as I said before, the brain. The, I can we hear that? What was their motto again? Because that was great. I just want to hear it again. Service above self. Awesome. Uh, with that in mind, and the fact that I had not yet used my accumulated skills, life skills, uh, I thought it was time to to find to use those things for the for the good of someone else mm. and that was really for mothers and babies um, because that was where 
my interest lays, where my career was. The other things that I did were incidental. They were running parallel, but they were not... I wouldn't describe myself as a builder or a vineyard or a winemaker, although I did those things, but uh, rather as uh, – or a businessman, but rather as an obstetrician gynecologist. But it was a bit like slumdog millionaire, you know, when you needed to, to you know, bu- get, a, get a building. You knew how to get the roof put together. You knew how to, to, you know, negotiate. You knew how to figure out a business plan. You knew how to do all these other things. I mean, it's not just the medicine. It's a, and, and, and when we were having coffee, you made such a great point that I'd like you to love you to share with the audience is that, you know, you weren't focused necessarily on helping this one particular child, this one particular mother. Oh, that's important. But you were trying not to fish. You were trying to teach them to fish. Can you, can you talk about your philosophy on that? I just think that's so important. Yes. Well, in full-time practice, uh, I couldn't hardly go for a year and deliver a service or even a month and deliver a service to a number of people. The problem with that approach, uh, which is not to be um, decried, is that it's you go in, do something and go home. That does not leave long-standing benefits. So you so the, the, the thing that I wanted to do was to... Um, create a project and a program that left the people we came in contact with with skill sets that they didn't have before. And this country at that time had very little in the way of skill sets. I mean, there were 24 doctors for that population. 24 doctors for the entire country. country. Of a, of a, and it's about, eight, from memory, it's 800, like 800,000, 860,000 people or something. Yep. Wow. So 24 doctors. And how many nurses? I can't remember, but I think it was 64 or something <laughs> of that nature. Wow. You guys think uh, mid- you, th- you think you have midwives. 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 You think it takes a, you're in the queue a while here in Australia to get service. Wow. Well, yeah, that's the, the reality is that they didn't. Yeah. Uh, the, the terrain is spectacular, but it's mountainous. Mm. It's, it's really steep mountains and deep ravines and prone to uh, flooding and so forth. So it was very hard. I mean, a lady in labour might have to walk two days to get to some health centre, mm. which had no facility really to deal with any emergency. Mm. So that that was um, uh, that had to be addressed. The other thing too was that uh, there was the district that we worked in was the Bobinara district of mm-hmm. East Timor, ninety thousand people, one hospital, five community health centres, which looked like a big GP clinic really. Uh, none of those community health centres could manage deliveries on site, although the midwives were quite capable. Um, and the hospital didn't really have specialists at, at the time uh, that I first looked at it, although they did. They came from um, Cuba in the end. Mm. Janana Guzmao was the president. He was a revolutionary leader and uh, he was able to approach uh, the then um, head of Cuba, Castro, for support who happily sent over 600 medical people uh, across all fields. But um, that was sort of more on the top-heavy side of doing something to improve the situation. Ours was really based at the community level. Mm. Um, And so uh, it was clear that uh, we needed uh, to use some business principles in Mm -hmm. terms of establishing a project. We need to develop a, a plan. We need to look at... Uh, we need to analyse that plan for its strengths and weaknesses and opportunities. Uh, we need then to create the plan and then fundamentally execute it. Mm. Well, lots of people have good ideas and they make plans, but they never get around to executing mm. it. This is where um, 
Rotary uh, came into, uh, into the picture because to execute it required a lot of resources, a lot of people to donate their time and energy, a lot of institutions like the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists who were our patrons, the, uh, the former First Lady of East Timor, mm-hmm. Kirsty Sword Guzmao, and uh, we had to also get the, the, the East Timorese Ministry of Health to adopt the project and then make it theirs and we, if you like, were the instruments of their project. So all along we gave ownership of everything that we did to the people that we supported. And essentially it was about capacity building and it was about building up their healthcare system how to get information, how to analyse it, then what to do with it and how to execute it. But it, but at the same time, we needed to address those acute things. There was no functioning ambulance, well, there's no four-wheel drive ambulance and we provided one from SA Ambulance mm. secondhand, came out of um, country South Australia. Uh, how we, big of a difference would that make? Jeez. Well, well it was one for 90,000 people. Jeez. So they were able to traverse uh, roads that their previous ambulance, which was broken down at the time, couldn't. Furthermore, um, community health centres uh, had no labour wards and they had no, uh, um, no place, no facilities for family to accompany the, the, uh, the woman who was pregnant or in need of help and remain because it culturally... Family came with the pregnant lady to the hospital or to the need, to the community centre. Well, they finally got there, but they couldn't get anywhere until they had an ambulance. Mm. And eventually, we this is where my building skills came in. Uh, I could see how we could use existing infrastructure. Some of it hadn't been used much; that had been done by other NGOs, and we were able to easily convert or add and create real labour wards, so wow. so that. And at the same time, we were able to, through Rotary Australia World Community Service, which has these massive storehouses of donated goods all around Australia, and the one we have here is near the RAAF base out at Salisbury. It's enormous, and there are millions of dollars' worth of stuff in there. And uh, we were able to send uh, containers uh, to East Timor to be distributed in our sphere of influence. My, I, my understanding is, like, you you could send over uh, – if somebody gave you 10 bucks, you could turn it into 100 bucks, basically. Yeah. Can you talk about how you were able to do that? Well, as far as, one, one uh, of the things uh, – well, what we can say from the onset is that it, it, any donation to Rotary, uh, whether it be goods or services or money, uh, is managed without administrative cost, largely. Wow. You know, every dollar you give us, uh, there's almost – I'd say 99 cents or 98 cents go back and the other two cents is for administrative things like paperwork and phone and stuff like that. But essentially what you give us goes back and people are doing this work uh, without any charge. So they're motivated. With the, they have the same motivations I have and everyone else has. So but if you're providing a plane ticket for, say, a doctor to go somewhere with Rotary, you know, they're, that's great, but they're they're getting tens of thousands of dollars worth of medical care that's not getting billed mm. is, is yes, the value absolutely. that's being created. Yes, that's that's what I like to see as leveraging. C- can I give you an example? Please. Uh, we could fit $100,000 at the time, $100,000 worth of goods mm-hmm. into a 
40-foot container, but it would only cost us 10000 to to ship it. So it was not very difficult to ask people, give me 10 and I'll turn that into 100000 mm. Now, we can divert. Uh, we just go off a little bit here, but there's a there's an organisation called the SA Food Bank. Now, I like them a lot. Why? Because you give them $1, they buy $6 worth of food to give away. Mm. That's leverage. It's very attractive. Or the Fred Hollows Foundation, $25 someone gets to see for the rest of their life. I mean, that's that's a small amount of money with a big impact. Mm. So um, <clears throat> in our project in East Timor, that was always my line, is that whatever we do, if we do it consistently and organised and well, then we're going to get a lot of results. And I found that it wasn't immediately difficult to get support. For example, the Rotary Club of Baldwin in Victoria came to our aid for over five years at the tune of 50000 a year. Mm. And that was used to support the ambulance, the ambulance driver, the nurses that we engaged. We built a learning centre, a training centre, and we paid uh, the East Timorese. And um, we paid all of our the people involved so that uh, to, to help themselves, basically. Um, <laughs> Tell me a little bit about how you were able to rebuild this infrastructure that was basically destroyed or dismantled by the Indonesian government, the little part that you were able to work on. Yes. Um, When the Indonesians retreated uh, together with the East Timorese cohorts, they burnt down about 90% of government buildings. Wow. And about half or 70% of homes. So at the Maliana Hospital where we're working, there was an ex-labor ward and it had been burnt out, but they, they burnt them with petrol bombs. So it was an immediate heat. The roof came out, the timber came out, but the walls remained standing. So with the help of Rotary, we were able to, in East Timor and in Australia, we were able to re-roof this and rebuild it inside and create uh, a place that we stocked with computers, uh, a learning centre, and also accommodation for our on-ground coordinator who came from Adla- and most of them came from Australia and stayed a year. And they dismantled all the uh, educational institutions as well, though. How, how did you cr- start creating more doctors, more nurses? I mean, the, the people are important, just as important as the facilities. Yes. Well, that was done by Shanana and the, and the Cuban doctors. But I remember the first medical school in um, Maliana, that's our, mm-hmm. the centre of our operations, consisted of two 40-foot containers joined together with some cutouts for doors and an air conditioner. And at the time, the government said, if you uh, have got a high school certificate and you want to be a doctor, we'll train you. And that mm. was it. These kids were wonderful. They were lovely. And the, they spoke Tetan and Portuguese, but not Spanish. So it was an interesting <laughs> arrangement to have your medical course taught to you in Spanish, although you spoke Portuguese and Tetan. But they did manage. And that was one way of taking what they had mm-hmm. and using it. Well, they had so little, no matter what you did, was going to make an impact. You know, that's... that's a I think that's right. And I think that, that the, the, the driving force that, that I had for that project and the one that I was able to share with people who came along is that things were so bad that if you did something properly, well-organised, with obvious objectives and measurable outcomes, you were going to win and people liked that, and we had no trouble in getting the support that we needed locally and locally here in Australia. 
I mean, and then internationally, I mean through Rotary International and also in East Timor itself. Great. Hey, in just a minute or two, because uh, Rotary's got so many things gr- great going on, well, is there anything you'd like to promote or any way people can help that you could share with us? Yes. The project in East Timor and uh, home hosting was uh, some time ago. I'm now community service director of my club, which is out at uh, – we operate mostly in the Campbelltown area. So I'd like to, s- to mention that the Campbelltown City Council, which area, by the way, is the second most culturally diverse in the state, is a, 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 has partnered with our club on a number of things. For example, the community workshop, we've just extended that. That's in paradise. It was $126,000 to do. And uh, Campbelltown Council was our equal partner, if you like, and they organised the build. Uh, we funded about half of that, and there's... Uh, and most of that funding I was able to get with the help of colleagues through government grants, and we got about $50,000 in government grants. So when something has merit and, it's e- and you demonstrate it, you have to demonstrate it, though, which I did with the survey, then people come on board. And mm. I think that's the, the key to a successful fundraising is that it's got to be seen, it's got to be palpable, and, you, you, you know... So we uh, have a. Uh, we'd like to invite anyone out there who has skills in woodworking to contact the Rotary Club of Morialta dot org uh, because we are looking for volunteers to supervise some of the members in the workshop. The extension will take our membership from sixty two to ninety, and these are older people who benefit from that social um, uh, social interaction, sharing skills. And we recycle tools, we recycle wood, so we're environmentally friendly. At the moment, I'd like to um, again thank Campbelltown City Council for um, supporting us in a dance and music festival, which is coming up in Thorndon Park, and that will be between the 4th and the 12th. You can get information by uh, going to danceandmusicfestival.com, which is a very simple moniker, and uh, we're presenting for you a range of things from Latin dance and music um, uh, with La Bomba, then uh, several ballroom classical presentations from Adelaide Dance Project and Quick Steps, as well as a uh, dinner, dance, dinner evening with music from the Indian and Pakistani community. Um, and uh, on, on Sunday the 12th, both you and I having Chinese wives now, mm. uh, Relevant is a uh, classical dance group, um, Dance Your Studios, who will be putting on uh, a demonstration of and a performance of uh, classical Chinese dance, which is really lovely to look at. So lots of things happening in the park, and we need your support, so please come along. All right, and then they can learn more about it, uh, all of these things, again, probably on the website, which is Rotary... Uh, RotaryClubOfMoriata.org. There you go. Well, thank you very much for being with us today, Bruno. We're going to be back in just a little bit with another wonderful guest uh, who is going to tell you about some great work that she's doing in Papua New Guinea. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back with another fabulous guest. But before I jump into that, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, take the time to give a shout-out to Olive, 
Bruno, your grandpa loves you very much. <laughs> uh, your grandpa Bruno loves you very much, Olive, and he just wanted me to let you know that. So before we get stuck into our next guest, I, I want to say that you know some of us are engaged in being of service to others from the get-go. Uh, and because we know that's the direction we want our life to take, others of us are different. Maybe we know in our heart this is what's best for us, but we don't listen, or or we choose a different path. Like myself, looking back, I realize now that the only times I was really happy were times that I was of service, whether it was volunteering in Boy Scouts, military training, church, or other volunteer organizations. But being born into a significantly less than affluent family, to put it nicely, I felt the need to generate an income out of fear of not being able to provide for myself and ending up on the street. Our next guest was a lot wiser than me, you know, and chose a career of service right away and has made a huge impact ever since. Judy Brown is a registered nurse and a registered midwife. She's been a director of education at the Women and Children's Hospital here in Adelaide. She's been the acting chief nurse of the South Australian government. She's been the registrar of the Nurses Board of the South Australian government. And she's been the director of inter the International Confederation of Midwives, which has over 100 and 20 member nations. These are just a few of the many things on her resume. She's also chosen to help out the nation of Papua New Guinea. I could go on and on, but we just don't have the time. We're just so lucky to have her here today. Of course, Papua New Guinea is another country that's had a hard go of it. It currently ranks 161 out of 194 countries in life expectancy. Its neonatal mortality rate is 10 times worse than Australia. One out of 94 women who become pregnant in Papua New Guinea are going to die at some point in their lives in childbirth. So again, Judy, thank you so much for being here today. Um, and before we dig into all the awesome work you've done, I, I, I would like to talk to you about how you decided uh, to follow a path of service. Well, I guess it, um, I was 15 and decided that um, I wanted to leave school and I wanted to get into the workforce. And I'd always been very attracted to nursing, so I was lucky enough to get a cadet nursing um, position at the Royal Brisbane Hospital and that went on to three years of nursing training and um, I just loved every minute of it. It's wonderful and a real privilege to be able to care for people, um, care for people in Australia, care for people overseas. Uh, nursing's a fabulous career, takes you places. And um, after I'd had my three children, decided I wanted to pursue midwifery because um, it looks so interesting to me and so different to what I'd been doing in nursing. And it's become my passion. And uh, I just feel really privileged to be able to have a career that I just love so much, gets out of bed every morning. And, um, you know, it's it's been very, very rewarding for me. And I know for other people that have um, gone into midwifery as well. Wow. Tell us a little bit about um, your your uh, how you ended up doing some work with Papua New Guinea and what that was like. Um, that was because um, I was involved with Rotary, so I joined Rotary in about 2011. We'd come back, my husband and I, from overseas. We'd been working overseas for a number of years. Um, and I was on a call with the Australian College of Midwives, 
and they were talking about Papua New Guinea and the fact that they'd had a program up there from 2011 to 2015 that had a midwife that had been trying to strengthen the midwifery association up there but unfortunately the government funding had run out and they were saying we just don't want to leave the people up there with the good work that they're doing and just just walk away and so I thought you know one of the focus um, for, for Rotary is maternal and child health. That's one of the big focus areas. And so I said, look, let me just talk to our Rotary Club and just see if there's anything that we can possibly do. And that's the way the whole project was born. Mm. So um, it was just going to Rotary and saying, is there a possibility that we can do this? And, of course, being Rotarians, people of action, they said, absolutely, we can do it. So it started in 2018 was to be a three-year program but it's extended because of COVID into being a five-year program and we're hoping that that was stage one we'll be able to go into stage two because we've been asked to extend the work that we're doing because they're seeing such good results. Hmm. I think I, I you told me that you've so far you've trained 24. We have. In this, and it's, it's more of a, a buddy program so it's not mm-hmm. so much I mean, you're, you're again. You're like Bruno was talking about before. Uh, you're uh, you're not just fishing for them. You're teaching them to fish. But Australians are getting a big benefit from it too because they're being exposed to different ways of doing things. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? For yes, us? sure, sure. And you're absolutely right um, because it is a buddy program. So it's helping midwives. I mean, I mean, the main aim is actually to reduce the maternal and neonatal mortality mm. and morbidity in PNG. And we're doing that uh, through strengthening the leadership and the advocacy skills of midwives in PNG. We're doing that by aligning them with a buddy, a buddy midwife from Australia who works with the PNG midwife on a program, so a quality project that will last for a 12-month period. But it's been wonderful for the PNG midwives because they asked us to help them. It wasn't that we just went in and said, look, you know, you guys really need to you know, be able to do this and that. They asked us to come. They said we lack leadership, um, we lack advocacy skills, and we know that's going to make a huge difference um, if we can have some training around that. So it's... It's actually creating an environment now in the PNG. Even though it looks like a small number of midwives, there's still only a thousand midwives in PNG. Wow. They need eight thousand just to service Jeez. the maternity services that they have there. But those thousand midwives are doing a lot. They're doing tremendous amount of work in their provinces. They're creating a network through this program throughout the regions, talking to each other. What are the sort of things, interventions that we can put into place? So they're doing things like building waiting houses for women that are coming into the hospital to have their baby. Before there was nowhere for the women to um, to come. They'd just come and sit outside the hospital and wait to go into labour. Um, they're looking at antenatal programs. We take that for granted. Every woman that you know is going to have a baby in Australia goes to antenatal classes. Um, they're encouraging partners to come um, into the birthing rooms as well. That was never done in mm. PNG before. 
There's a whole lot of things about teenage pregnancy, for instance, huge amount of teenage pregnancy in PNG, um, and what they're doing is looking at talking in the schools, midwives going into the schools and talking about reproductive health. So there's a tremendous amount of small projects going on at community and local level, and it's all because um, the midwives are taking the leadership and advocacy roles within their community, and they're making a difference. Mm-hmm. Wow. One thing I just want to highlight that you said, there's so much that was great there, but one thing that, that of the many things that jumped out at me was when you talked about how you're, you're not going into there saying, you need help, you need the blah, 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 blah. You're not taking this moral high ground and, oh, here I come to save the day, Dudley Do-Right program. You're saying, what can we do to help? And then and working with them as partners and equals and giving them respect. Mm. Absolutely, and they deserve respect because those midwives, the ones that I've met and worked with in P&G, they deserve our respect because they work in conditions that I couldn't work in. Mm. They have extremely hard life, but they love what they do and they have a passion. One midwife said to me, I stand on my toes to learn more for the women that I serve. Mm. And I just, I think that just says it all. Mm. Um, P&G's got a very fragile health system. There's a lot of poverty. There's a lot of um, disease. 85% of people in PNG live in rural and remote areas, so it's very hard for them to access um, proper maternity services or maternity services with skilled attendants. So everybody, you know, is really having a really hard struggle, but midwives are trying to turn around some of those really, really bad figures that we're hearing. Um, and they're doing it again through leadership and advocacy training. You know, some people say, well, you know, shouldn't you be training midwives in clinical skills? But they've got the clinical skills. They're professional midwives. They do exchange information with their Australian buddy. Um, and we also do some um, clinical day where we actually take them out after the workshop, during the workshop that we do in Port Moresby. And we look at what's happening in the clinical field to update the Australian midwives and also the midwives from PNG. And that's very, very beneficial for them because they can see things that is happening in health centres that mightn't be happening in the health centres where they work in PNG. But you're right, it's also fabulous for the Australian midwives because they're learning about mentoring. Um, a lot of these are senior midwives that we're taking up to PNG. Um, but they're learning a lot about leadership and they're also learning um, about what it is in developed countries, what midwifery practice might look like, which they might not have been aware of before. Wow, that's some powerful stuff. I mean, I, I, but we're going to hear a lot more of it here in just a little bit uh, with Judy. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back with downtown Judy Brown. Uh, who has done, wow, so much that we uh, don't have enough time to go over. But can you tell us a little bit about what you've actually learned through your experience in Papua New Guinea? What, what did you learn? Well, I learned patience. Um, I learned that cultures are very different um, and that you have to take your time um, to get to know um, what are the norms and to really immerse yourself. Um, I learned again about the strength um, of midwives and particularly the strength of women in very hard circumstances. 
I'm always amazed wherever I've actually worked in the world at the strength that women show and the humility that they show in, in the work that they do. Mm. So I guess I relearned a few things, but mm. I also learned a few different things as well. Mm. What are what are your plans for the future as far as, you know, how else are you going to continue to make an impact? You've done so many things nationally and internationally. Well, there's always good things happening in Rotary. Um, with the PNG project, we've also got um, a project that we're helping in um, Uganda and uh, we're just really providing money for that, but we're also providing support for uh, water storage in schools um, and also for things like furniture and desks and whatever in some um, of the schools around Kampala. So, you know, th- there's always something that you can get involved in. You get you get so much out of Rotary depending on how much you want to put in, mm. you know. So... That's um, there's always something that that we'll be able to do now. Like I'm 75 years old now. Um, I thought you. I thought uh, Bruno said you're 75 years young. Oh well, I'm 75 years young. There you go. Thank okay. you, Bruno. He's always been a gentleman, Bruno. Mm. But um, I, I know that there's there's still plenty of things that I want to do, and it keep it does keep me young. And mm. service clubs do keep you active, mm. and you've got wonderful friendships and wonderful support. So you really couldn't ask for more, I don't think. And at the beginning of the show, I don't know if you heard, uh, but I talked about how volunteerism is down. Mm. Can Why do you think that is, and what do you think can be done, in your opinion, to reverse that trend, mm. if anything? Well, I know we're an aging population, so you know I know a lot of People my age um, of grandparents, they've got grandchildren and they're doing a lot more for grandchildren these days, you know, minding grandchildren day in, day out. It's one of the things. We're getting older. It's getting more difficult um, to actually do the physical activities that may well be required. Um, Talking with my daughter and her friends, um, they say, well, we can't really make a commitment. We're just so busy. We're so time poor Mm -hmm. at the moment. But I really think that if you're interested, you'll seek out a way to do it. If you really want to give back and that's something that's really important to you, doesn't matter how busy you are, you'll make time to do it. Mm. And I think if service clubs can actually look at the profile of the person that wants to become the volunteer and say, what is it that interests you? What interests have we got in our organisation that you can connect to? And how much time have you actually got to commit? And how can we make that work for you? Instead of saying, you have to come to every meeting, you have to come to every activity. We're not doing that anymore. We're basically trying to get the person to fit in with the club and the club to fit in with the person so that it's mutual. Mm. I, I should have mentioned this before, but you're the current president of, of Rotary in no, your chapter. I oh, have no, been. you're not. Oh, no, you have been. I have I'm sorry, been. I I'm a good. past president. Okay, you're a past yeah, president. I so, am indeed. So, <laughs> but unlike Bill Clinton, there's no uh, scandals associated with you. Well, <laughs> so, you, you never know, Matthew. Okay. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so your advice is, for organizations is try to, uh, you know, figure out where the people fit mm, and, and accommodate them that way. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That's leadership mm. 101. Mm. That's that's wonderful stuff. Um, well, is there anything that you would like to promote about, uh, uh, you know, that's that's going on with Rotary? Or what, what suggestions would you have for people that want to get involved, either in Rotary or something else? Well, if you want to get involved, just, just make contact. 
you know, um, th- there's the old joke that goes around to someone praying, saying, please, I really need to win the lottery. Mm-hmm. I really, really need to win the lottery. And one day God actually says to him, well, buy a ticket. <laughs> so I think that's got a lot to do with, you know, service organisations. If you really, really want to make a difference and you want to volunteer, well, buy a ticket and actually go in and talk to the people that are in those organisations. Mm. And um, you'll be surprised and how friendly the people are. You'd be surprised at how supportive they are, and you'd be surprised at the work that you'll be the skills that you'll be able to contribute. Mm. So you know you'll get a kick out of it. It's it's a very very enjoyable way to spend your time. I can guarantee it. So your your words of wisdom are just do it. Yeah, absolutely. Just, just do it. Just do it. Make the contact, and and we'll take it from there. Have me. you ever regretted any of the volunteer work you've done? No, I've been tired. Mm-hmm. And and my husband's been tired. We've sort of walked into our house sometimes and said we can hardly walk. We'll have to sit down. But we've always recovered mm. really, really well. And um, we've talked about how much we've enjoyed it. So, mm. yeah, I, I've never had, never any regrets. I could say that mm. honestly. Out of all of the organizations you've been in, all the places you've helped, mm-hmm. all the stuff you've done with the UN, you've had two mm-hmm. or three global titles. Mm-hmm. What's the one that gave you the most personal satisfaction oh that's that's hard um probably probably um the white ribbon alliance that was a that is a global organization now um i was asked to actually go on that to be one of eight women that actually developed that that whole program and that whole group and just tremendous from the ground up actually it's now got offices in washington and london and it does fantastic global work but to be one of the founding members of that and to be the first chair of that that would the white ribbon and uh sorry again i'm showing my mastery of the english language the white ribbon alliance Alliance for safe motherhood is is domestic it yes it's it's the white ribbon alliance for safe motherhood Uh when we first had the name white ribbon alliance we didn't realize that there was another registered organization that was about domestic violence the white ribbon so we had to change it for safe motherhood but then that's what it's all about Mm. so i think that is probably been the most satisfying thing that I've ever been involved with and that was probably for about six or so years Wow, well you heard it all here folks, the point is no regrets, life of service for 75 years, thank you very much for everything you've done as a fellow human being, (laughs) I just want to thank you for everything you've done it's it's inspiring for others, I'd like to thank everybody uh, for listening today I'd like to thank Bruno uh, Dr. Bruno Giorgio for joining us as well and Mark Aston for paneling. But most of all, I, I, I just want to thank all of you for listening. And join us again next week, Monday at 6 p.m. for Change the World with Matt McQuinley. And as always, I'll leave you with a brief inspirational message. We talked a lot today about helping other people. We didn't talk, however, about the fact that it helps us. Not only does it help society, which makes it safer for all of us and all of us happier, not only does it help us feel better about ourselves, not only has it been proven by multiple studies that volunteerism helps both the volunteer's health, both mentally and physically, volunteering and helping others can even sometimes define who we are and give us the skills we need to be successful. I just want to give you a couple quick examples. 
If you have time, I urge you to listen to the podcast I did on Raoul Wallenberg to get some more details. But Raoul Wallenberg came to mind. At the tender age of 32 years old, he's credited with saving as many as 100,000 lives during the Holocaust and World War II. Some of the people he saved as a volunteer include a U.S. congressman, a Nobel Prize winner, another chemist who was actually on the board of the Nobel Prize Committee, yet another who's called the father of modern surface chemistry, among many, many others. Dame Agatha Christie, who is recognized in the Guinness Book of World Records as the best-selling author of all time, was a volunteer nurse in World War I and World War II. She says that that experience is what inspired almost all of her famous books. Nobel Prize winner for literature, Ernest Hemingway, was an ambulance driver in World War I. He says it is what gave him the character, the discipline, and the inspiration for most of his writing. Clara Barton only had one friend as a child because she was so painfully shy until she decided she needed to take care of other people. She had no formal training as a nurse, but educated herself as a nurse, served as a nurse in the American Civil War, and later went on to found the American Red Cross, as well as become a leader in women's suffrage. Ben Franklin started the first volunteer fire department before he helped found a nation. What do we learn from these people? Well, probably a little bit too much to discuss here today. But one thing is that before they were what we call great, or famous even, they were servants. Perhaps service and volunteering is what made them great later. As a great one once said, whoever would be the great amongst you must first be your servant. We also learn that there are two types of people. One, like Robert Francis Kennedy said, who, quote, see things as they are, unquote. Whereas he said, quote, I dream of things that never were and say, why not, unquote. Put in my terms, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's the kind of person who focuses on themselves and never really attains their goals, who live an unfulfilled, uninspired, and unsatisfied life and never become the person they could have been. And then there's the other type of person who, through helping others, find out who they really are, who build the character, the strength, and the knowledge to overcome almost any obstacle, to bear almost any burden, and succeed where many others fail. The question is, as always, which one are you?